Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about farming, talking about what it looks like to have some crops, have some animals, turn them into money, sell them at the market, you know, all of those good things. We're talking to Juma Aojuju. Welcome to the show. Hi, Keith. Yeah, man, really excited to talk to you. You've got one of the, the best games ever. <laughs> it's in the top 50, Clans of Caledonia, and it's got this really cool farming theme. It's got an economic aspect to it. It's really an economic game, but you get this awesome farming theme on top of it. So I'm excited to kind of get your ideas, get your thoughts about how to design a game that has farming, you know, at its core, or at least at its theme. And so, you know, first of all, congrats on making an awesome game. And then I'm just really interested to kind of get your process on that kind of thing. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Um, I was born in Dubai and I lived there the first five years of my life. And then I grew up in South Germany, in Bavaria, most of my life. And um, as a kid, I think I was around nine years old, I entered a chess club and I really loved chess. It was a big hobby of mine. And through chess, I also got to know board games like Settlers of Catan and so on. Um, but yeah, I really played a lot more chess than other board games because like it was organized in a club so it was easier to find like opponents and uh, yeah not so many people were going to play settlers with me <laughs> unfortunately um so and then actually I, I had a bit of a break where i hardly played board games at all and only when i was i think like 22 or 23 i kind of returned to board games mostly during my um yeah i had during my studies in the netherlands i studied uh like five six to nine months abroad they had like a board game club on the campus there i started to design a game i was basically inspired by el grande um one of my favorite games from my childhood and i really liked the game and i was wondering what about the game made it so enjoyable and what about it did i not like so much so what could i improve and through this process, I kind of designed a new game that ended up being quite a bit different, but also a little similar. And that was Bindil. And through that process, I mean, I really enjoyed designing the game. I didn't have any clue how to design the game. I just did it. And, um, yeah. And I just noticed that how much I enjoyed it. And I felt like I might be also talented at it. So I, I studied entrepreneurship at that moment, and um, so naturally I was quickly wondering if the, I could do this professionally, and then I figured, okay, I made some research and I found out that hardly any game designer does it like uh, professionally, and uh, most of them are just doing it in their leisure time, and um, and I quickly realized that if I want to do this professionally I really have to self-publish um, because otherwise the chances are kind of slim to be able to earn a living and um, and yeah so then I kind of yeah looked about how I could do that and I found out about crowd uh, couch surf and uh, couch surfing uh, crowdfunding and Kickstarter and I was really attracted to this crowdfunding topic and um, and yeah and I wrote my master thesis about it, and um, yeah, and I basically founded Karma Games, my self-publishing board game company. And um, I published Green Deal. This was the first game. And uh, yeah, so this is how everything started and how I came into game design. And yeah, so basically, the the very begin at the very beginning when I started this company, I wasn't actually as Experienced uh, in game, in board games, as maybe most many other people are, but yeah, I still kind of was very serious about founding this company. 
Yeah, well, experience or not, you've created some really, really good games. I think Green Deal is a game that probably gets overlooked at this point. It came out some years ago, but it, it it's a really good game. I was actually I watched a review. I went back and watched the Dice Tower review yesterday, getting ready for uh, uh, this this interview, and uh, it's it's a good game. Like it, it's it it just stands out, uh, especially back when it was uh, first first created. And then Clans of Caledonia, obviously, you know, one of the better games ever made. And so as we get into kind of what a farming game is, what it looks like. Let's get a good little working definition. When when somebody says farming, you know, whether it's a theme or the, whether it's how the game mechanically works and all that, what are, what are we talking about? Let's get a good definition of farming games. Well, I would say a farming game has usually economic elements, and it is obviously about farming, about growing crops, about livestock, um, potentially. And, um, and yeah, what I like about this, this farming theme so much is, I mean, I'm, I'm an economist, so I'm naturally attracted to economy, economic mechanics and economic themes and so on. And Green Deal had, was like a purely economic game. And one of the reasons I think why it wasn't, uh, that commercially successful, despite like blowing review from the dice tower, was because like this, uh, typical economic theme reminds people of work, so it's not very, uh, it doesn't really allow people to escape their everyday life. And farming is, is, is very good in that regard because, like, everyone understand has a, like, an intuitive, uh, grasp of farming. Yeah, everyone has something, has some relation to farming in the sense that they are eating the products of, of farming, of farms. And in the farming theme, you have economic mechanics and principles embedded. Um, and they're kind of, yeah, you could say they're a little bit hidden because it is an economic game or many farming games are economic games to a certain degree, but um, they don't maybe feel like it. Um, they don't feel as dry as like a business or a finance game. Uh, and that that was kind of why I chose farming as a theme for Plants of Caledonia. Yeah, gotcha. And so, like you're saying, there are a, a lot of farming games out there. You know, Uwe Rosenberg has, has designed several. There's been lots of designers that this is kind of their main shtick is, is designing farming themes. And so what is it about this theme that draws people in? Why do people keep coming back to it over and over again? You mentioned one thing just there is, you know, you get to kind of escape, you know, it's, it's not a spreadsheet. It's not, it doesn't feel like work. So you get to kind of deal with that. But what else, what is it about these, these engine building games that have the farming theme or, or that kind of, what is it that just keeps bringing people back to these games? Yeah, I think it's like a good mixture. And on, on the one hand, most people don't have any uh, like direct experience with farming. I mean, farming is not part of their everyday job. So in that sense, Farming, a farming theme lets people escape from their everyday life, but at the same time, people still have quite a bit of knowledge about farming, at least some intuitive knowledge, and um, that way you can, for instance, yeah, use rather complex mechanics or rather many embedded interconnected mechanics, um, and since people, if the mechanics are thematic, um, people are actually able to, yeah, grasp it and, and, um, digest the complexity and the complexity feels actually less complex than it actually is because people have an intuitive understanding of it. If you, um, replace a farm, a farming game with the farm, you replace the theme with something completely different, I don't know. About I don't know um, mechanic I don't know mechanical engineering or something um, about which most people have very little knowledge. Then the same mechanics would feel a lot more complex, and I think that's why farming themes are so popular both among publishers, designers, and gamers. Yeah, that's a really great point. Now, when you were first starting to work on Clans of Caledonia. Give me like the backstory. How did the game, you know, become an idea? How did it like, did it start off as a farming game or did it start off as something else? Give me kind of how the game came to be at the beginning. Yeah, well, with Green Deal, um, I mean, with Green Deal, I tried to, to, to design an, um, an educational or let's say a, a game with a kind of a serious topic. It was called about like sustainability or let's say sustainable business. Uh, corporate social responsibility and uh, and 
even though the, the game itself was well regarded by reviewers, it wasn't commercially so successful. So I was really um, a bit more strategic um, with my choices when I designed clans. So rather than just designing a game and then seeing how it goes, I really thought a lot about um, which in which direction I gotta go so to maximize the chances of its success. One one thing was that okay, I, I really like economic mechanics. I think this is something I'm good at because I also studied it. And then my I, I thought okay, a farming theme would probably work better than like a corporate theme that I used before. And so this was kind of the first uh, premise. And then I was inspired by other games most at the beginning it was mostly Navigadra. Um, it's like an economic game about exploration, sailing, colonization, um, I don't know, 16th, 17th century Portugal, and it is designed by McGirt. And I really, really like that game. And in the beginning, the game um, very much resembled Navigador with a farming theme. It also had a rondel back then. And um, also the market mechanic was more similar to uh, Navigator than it is right now. And it was going okay and I wasn't like 100% convinced myself and I thought it was okay but not very good and so I didn't touch it for a while, for 9 months I think. Then my daughter was born and shortly after my daughter was born I kind of had like a really a breakthrough idea um, that made me excited uh, to, to to continue to work on the game and the idea was basically in the beginning the the market mechanic was a pure uh, sales market yeah so you could only sell sell stuff and like in Navigator you couldn't buy stuff and you were actually not um, selling physical goods but you were just like having like a could say a sales capacity through the productive facilities you have of course that is kind of elegant and you don't need to have as many wooden tokens and so on so it's kind of handy but it also makes it a little bit less realistic and also a bit more um, abstract and my breakthrough idea was to rather have physical tokens for the goods you're selling but also allow the players to buy goods um, this was uh, the first idea and then the second idea was uh, to have both uh, basic goods and processed goods and the third idea was that you could al also export those goods and these three things together which are per se rather simple they create for quite a lot of death without a lot of rules overload and I very quickly realized that this is the breakthrough idea and then I, I really worked like on rails on the game and I uh, yeah and I very quickly um, came to a point where the game design was like 80-90% ready like I think within four months, three to four months the game was so ready that I convinced Clemens Franz to illustrate the game and back then I was still not 100% sure about the topic um, I knew it should be like a farming theme but um, I was in the beginning I was considering Tennessee because of whiskey um, I had I somehow decided that I want whiskey to be part of the game and then I uh, thought yeah Tennessee would be a good place but then through some feedback from people I realized Tennessee is kind of a delicate issue um, um, due to civil war and so on and doesn't have the best image among Americans so um, then I kind of parted away from um, Tennessee and then my uh, and a friend of mine he told me I should have I should add variable player powers of, to the game and so when I decided to part away from Tennessee and he told me yeah you should add variable player powers to the game actually I was back then not a big fan of variable player powers but I mean he still kind of he was very uh, insisting that I should give it a try and then I thought okay if I if I don't go for Tennessee and it shall and it's still about whiskey and I add variable player powers, well then it's obviously Scotland. And that was a very obvious choice then that uh, to make Scotland the theme of the game. And yeah, that's 
how it went. Then I added the, the plants and also tried to make it more thematic and uh, uh, tweaked a few mechanics to fit the scene a bit better. Uh, yeah. Wow, very cool. And so a few things I just want to unpack right there. One of the things you mentioned is the simplicity of the game. The game is very simple to understand, not necessarily simple to play, but it's definitely simple to understand, easy to get kind of the rules taught and whatnot. But then there's so many decisions you get to make based on these simple choices, right? What I, what I love about the game is that you don't have to go through three or four steps to create something, right? It's, okay, I, I have milk, now I can make cheese. Now I have cheese. And it, it's not like I have to, you know, do this and do that and do the other thing, and then eventually down the road I get to create the thing I'm after. Like, no, I can, I can do that in a turn or two. And then I have all these options. And then the market, the market is so cool because you have this buy and sell thing going on. You have the supply and demand thing. And so it changes the the value of the milk or the cheese or the bread, whatever you're trying to buy or sell based on how the players are interacting with the market, which is exactly like real life. It's very thematic just uh, for farming, but also thematic in just how the economics of a market actually works. And so I think very well done uh, as far as those two systems go. And I think that's you know why, why people love it. And then the clans. So tell me a little bit more about the clans as far as like how you came up with the different powers, because each power is really powerful. Like it's not little throwaway ideas. Like these, each clan has its own specific thing it can do. And it's like game changing in some ways. And so how did you come up with those? And like, did you go through like a, a, a phase of balancing the like, tell me about that whole process. Yeah. Um, I added the clans by um, reading up the history of the most important real clans in Scotland. And through reading the history of the clans, I sometimes found, okay, this clan had kind of like was famous for doing this or they had this. Uh, outstanding clan member and this guy was a great architect or something like this and through this uh, readings I kind of yeah tried out or, or determined certain clan abilities that somehow fit the clan history or a prominent clan member and um, at the beginning of the game design I playtested with a lot of different people and that gave me a lot of different quality to feedback about what is found, which clans are found, and so on. And then at some point, I, I switched to, let's say, only a balancing uh, phase, which was fairly long, actually, um, especially for a one-man company and a Kickstarter. And um, in this phase, I only playtested with the same people over and over again, and I only playtested with those who had... Um, rather high scores in the in the game, in the, so I knew their scores. I always collected the stats for, of each playtest, and then I kind of knew the course ranks of each player. And then I, I playtested with the strongest players over and over again. And this way, I could basically tell if a certain player excels um, with a clan if it's due to the player or if it's due to the clan ability. Um, if I'd play tested a lot with different people, I wouldn't know if if, if the if the guy who kind of won with a thirty point lead is just a genius or if the clan is overpowered. And um, but through playtesting with the same people over and over again, I could tell. And then I just tweak the the clan ability slightly until the uh, average scores for all clans were very similar. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think something that designers of any game can take heart or take to heart is, you know, make sure you're playtesting uh, intentionally, right? Don't don't just playtest with anybody and everybody all the time. It's also, there's a certain moment where you need to get more specific and, and maybe playtest with the same people over and over again to get different data than just kind of the wide, casting the wide net and just trying to figure out basics, right? And so that's that's a really good point. And so actually, let's, let's uh, continue talking about basics. If I'm, let's say I'm designing a farming game, I'm sitting down today, I'm going to start figuring it out. What would be your advice to me as far as like how to begin, you know, what, what's, what are some of the things I should be thinking about? What are some of the mechanisms I should be, or the systems I should be kind of pondering just from the ground up? What would you tell me? Well, I mean, first you should decide who's the target group. Um, and then all other decisions need to fit the target group. I mean, that's what I did with clients. I, I decided, okay, I want like a, to make a mid-core, uh, midweight uh, Euro game and then I, I really all decisions factored this in and sometimes I also made decisions that I personally wouldn't prefer myself but I kind of 
knew it would be better for the child group because in the end game designers need to remember we're not there to make ourselves happy but our job is to contribute to other people's happiness because if we only create games for ourselves there is a big chance that we make the game that we like the most but I mean we're not our customer we need to or many of us need to make a living of it or want to at least earn some money from it and then these considerations are becoming important um, also for me personally it's, it's also important to that because I want through my job I want to create value for others and yeah that also happens to make uh, any any product uh, potentially more successful commercially and um, so so then of course if for instance when you make a, a game for let's say kids or teenagers then it maybe shouldn't be like a very specific niche uh, farming game because they may have more difficulty to relate to it but something a bit more generic whereas then it, if it's like a, a heavy game um, for like super intelligent people who are willing to learn all the intricacies of uh, 15th century farming, um, then you can go into more niche topic, you can make it more thematic, you can add more complexity, and so on and so on. So that's kind of one question. Um, then there is another question, for instance, like if you prefer, and that's also a bit of a personal preference, if you prefer that the complexity of the game um, shall the complexity of the game stem from the rules and the thematic um, integration mostly or shall it stem from the interaction between players yeah um, for instance some games like Uwe Rosenberg games they tend to be very thematic and uh, have a lot of uh, details also a lot of rather fairly complex rules um, but then the complexity um, of the of the interaction is a bit lower. Yeah, for instance, I prefer to have a bit less rules and to be maybe also a bit less thematic, um, so the rules are a bit easier and it's a bit more accessible. And I prefer if the interaction actually makes the game deep. Um, yeah, so this is a, a core question to be considered. Yeah, definitely. Now, what are some ways that I can create player interaction? What are some ways you did it with clans or, or maybe some ways that, that you enjoy in other farming style games that, that players are actually bumping into each other and having to interact? Yeah, for instance, in Agricola, I mean, I was when I designed clans, I was also thinking about Agricola, although Agricola is quite a different game than clans. But in Agricola, you're having your own player board and your, the stuff you're building, you build it on your player board. And your player board is not really interacting with the player board of other players. Um, that's okay. But I personally, when I design a game, I try to make sure, or for me personally, it's important that almost everything that a player does impacts other players. And with clans, that is the case. So for instance, where I built on the, in the map really impacts other players because they cannot build there anymore or they can reach um, off the neighborhood bonus, um, and so on and so on, and they block them and so on. Um, yeah, so that is one thing that I consider when making games, but I mean, I wouldn't say it's, it's a necessity, it's just like a preference. I mean, um, there are also advantages to games where the interaction is a bit lower, um, there may be a bit less stress or less tension, and a bit, um, yeah, it doesn't feel as competitive maybe, because everyone is doing their own thing at the end you tally up the score and everyone is happy even though one person won whereas in other games like in zero sum games like chess there is a high interaction but this comes at the expense that one player feels defeated at the end yeah for sure and now one thing i really liked about green deal is that when players built on the map they could or built next to each other they could choose to either cooperate or to compete. And there were different systems, different things happening whenever you know that happened. So explain that system a little bit better and then kind of why you chose to, to do it that way. Well, mostly because I, I thought it would be kind of more interesting to have this choice. And it also creates for memorable moments because, I mean, it's not that easy um, to decide, like, especially if you have a game with more than, uh, with three or more players, like in Green Deal, it cannot be played with two. Then... Uh, it may it is not that trivial if 
let's say, um, me or, or us both of us earning two uh, income um, is better for me than I don't know me earning one income and you losing one income. Um, that is kind of an interesting question, and it is also it creates certain emotions at the table. Um, yeah, because it's not that trivial, and and yeah, that's something I kind of like about it. And that's also in real life like this, you know. <laughs> and then there is also some psychology into it. It's like, you know, if if the other player is a very revengeful person, maybe what would be best from a theor from a purely mathematical point of view is not best because that player will kind of try to fight back. And even though it's not good for that player, and that way you may end up losing. So you also have to consider the personality of your of the other players, like in real life and like in business. Uh, yeah, these kind of kind of concepts that I like. I mean, I like it if yeah, certain uncertainties and psychology of real life are embedded somehow in games. Yeah, definitely. It's very, very thematic, especially in that game where you've got competing corporations and then they you know, build close to each other and it's like, okay, are we going to work against each other or work with each other? It's just a very interesting choice to make. All right, back to farming. So again, let's go back to my little scenario. I'm, I'm working on a farming game and I'm trying to figure out what crops or what animals and that kind of thing that I want to have because I want to have I want to have 30 different things in my game, which might be a few too many. So what would be your advice as far as figuring out what crops to use, what animals, not having too many, but at the same time having enough? What are your thoughts? Ah, well, that's a difficult question. I mean, it really depends on the target group and what kind of game you're trying to make, what the complexity is supposed to be like, what how, how long the game is supposed to be. Um, I mean, there are obvious like, choices like pigs, um, um, or or uh, sheep and you could embed or cows or horses and so on. I mean, it really depends on the theme, I'd say. I mean, yeah, and time. I mean, I would really like try to read up on the history of the the time and the location you're you're interested in and and see what was most important back then. But then also, it is important to realize that sometimes making something um, thematic doesn't work so well. So, um, so for instance, with clans, I was very much considering like to rather have like bread or cheese, um, I could have added linen. Linen would have been more um, thematic in a gaming sense. Um, but uh, it was more important for Scotland at that time. But I, in the end, I decided against it because it is a bit more abstract, or it is a bit more, it's a bit more difficult uh, for people to relate to it than to bread and cheese, uh, let's say. So sometimes uh, it, it might be better to to make some conscious choices against thematic uh, accuracy, because like if people don't really get it, or if people have like a wrong conception about the theme uh, uh, with this with this aspect, then it may actually feel anti-thematic to people, even though historically it's thematic, you know, and and that's something to 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 consider. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. That makes a whole lot of sense. And so going back to clans, what were some of the thoughts? Like, did you have extra? Like you mentioned linen. Did you have any other? Uh, crops or resources that you had thought about putting in that you had to cut out or that you really wanted to go in there but just didn't quite fit in there and then like help me understand how you chose the ones that you did i mean whiskey was a no-brainer and sheep as well and then i mean milk and cheese um was yeah not the most thematic uh, choice but was also kind of okay um and yeah so the biggest question for me was really like if i should have like uh, linen in, in the game um, because cotton is in the game and cotton was basically um, yeah more or less burying the linen industry in Scotland. I mean linen was um, processed manually and cotton um, could be processed um, by machines so it was much more um, efficient to make clothes out of cotton rather than linen and um, so from, from, his, from a thematic standpoint it would have been more accurate to add linen um, apart from that 
I didn't really have any bigger doubts about what to add or not. Yeah, with the crops, were you thinking about like, okay, what can I turn into what? So you have milk and then, okay, I can turn that into cheese. I have wheat, okay, I can turn that into bread. Like, were you also thinking about like the different paths that players could take as far as what they turn the resources into? Uh, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. And what I want try to do also to have like a bit of a different, different yeah, let's say, how wool is a bit different than milk because <clears throat> wool cannot be processed in the game. Um, so then there is a little bit of a difference between wool and milk. Wool can be exported to the um, uh, to the export contracts and uh, milk cannot, but milk can be processed to cheese. And so that's why milk and cheese kind of is different than bread and um, grain. There is not a big difference between grain and, uh, actually there's no real difference between grain and bread and grain and whiskey. I mean, it's kind of the same mechanical process, um, in the game. But yeah, I was considering if, like, the aging of whiskey, if every whiskey that you, um, produce can be aged. So, so then basically every player would have, like, a, a whiskey cellar where the whiskey can age. And I don't know, in hindsight, maybe there was a mistake not to do it, but I just tried to make it as simple as possible. Um, and then I had this one clan ability that had this whiskey cellar, and I thought, okay, um, let's make the, the, the standard mechanics as simple as possible, and this whiskey aging um, element is basically one clan ability. Gotcha. All right, so we mentioned a moment ago as far as like Agricola and other games have a player board, and that's kind of where you build things, where you put things. Your game has a big like grid of hexes, and then I build out on this hex grid, and other players can build and build next to me and do different things. So tell me about that. Like, how did you figure out how big to make it? How did you, you know, why did you do hexes? How did you figure out which uh, like land types, terrain types to have? Tell me about the map. Mm, yeah, well, I, I, in in Green Deal, I have. Um standard grid and not hexes and i i do like grid because as a chess player obviously but um then i kind of realized okay um hexagons um are kind of pretty i think people like looking at hexagons and um i think it's not a surprise that settlers of Catan is so successful um it's it's a special form in nature it's efficient it's pretty um and um yeah, it is kind of I don't know. Somehow I f I think um, we feel attracted to to hexagons. So yeah, what 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 else did you want to know? Oh, as far as like the terrain types and different like sizes of the map, like tell me about your process. Ah, yeah, well that was a bit inspired by by Terra Mystica, which I liked a lot at that time, and. Um, the the only thing I didn't like in Terramiska too much was the this terraforming type because I thought it added quite a lot of complexity and it actually kind of reduced the interaction in the sense that um, what is expensive for me is can be cheap for you and vice versa and if that is the case we don't compete for the same land and I thought if interaction is important for me, I shouldn't go that route. And that's why I parted away from this terraforming um, mechanic in Terra Mystica. And again, I tried to make it thematic and I thought, okay, what can you build and where would you build this? And that's how I came up with uh, mountains, uh, forest and uh, grassland. And this way, you know, of course, the miner can go in the mountains, the, um, Lumberjack can go in the in the forest, and the production units can go in the grassland. That also kind of feels like more thematic, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And so, give me some more advice as far as uh, workers, or you know, it's, it's in certain ways it's kind of like a little worker placement kind of thing because you're putting them in different places to do different actions. Tell me about that, and, and like, give me some advice as far as if I'm making my own farming Euro style game. What I should be thinking about as far as different abilities, different types of workers, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it's a worker placement game. I would rather say it's it's a, an action selection game. I mean, you do place uh, meeples, um, but where you place them is not linked to a specific action. 
um, rather like rather than placing the meeple is the action already. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously you you have to decide what kind of action, what kind of game do you want? Do you want a worker placement game, a rondel game, an action selection game? What is the core uh, structure of the game? What is uh, how do people take turns? That's like a core question to be answered. Um, every system has its pros and cons. Another core question um, is: Do you want the game to have certain rounds and phases? Like Clans has, or uh, Agricola has, or do you prefer the game to go on until the game ends at some point through some game trigger? Like Jamie Stegmeier uh, strongly prefers this system, and Vincent Scythe has the system, or also um, uh, Euphoria, where you, or Viticulture, where you play and something triggers game end, and that's it. And uh, no, actually, uh, in Viticulture you do have game rounds, but the end of the game is still triggered by something. You don't have a fixed number of rounds. So that's another question, if you have a fixed number of rounds or if the game end is triggered by something. Um, yeah, these are kind of like key questions that you should ask yourself. Yeah, definitely. Alright, so tell me about the phases of clans and kind of how you figured out what those should be. Yeah, I personally like phases quite a lot because uh, for one, it adds the element of time. So, for instance, like if you build something, uh, I don't know, a field in the first round, it will produce five times. And if you go, if you uh, build it or place it later, then it will uh, produce fewer times. And in another game, like VT Culture, for instance, there. You can, there is one action, I don't know how it's called, but uh, you you basically put a worker there on this action um, space and then it lets you age your whiskey. From a mechanical point of view, that kind of works, but for me it feels a little anti-thematic because um, time is something passive, it just happens by itself um, and there you, you could actually go to that action space often in, in a short amount of time or rarely in a long amount of time and then those results wouldn't be the same or could be the same even though one time you basically did the same stuff and you produce the same um, uh, result in a short amount of time and the other scenario in a long amount of time and I think that doesn't feel right to me um, that's why I prefer phases um, when you have something like a production going on um, another preference of mine is you usually have some administration in these resource uh, management games, um, like collecting your income, for instance. And um, when you do this in um, in phases, you can basically do it at the same time as other players, or you can do it while you have passed and other players are still taking their turns. Or um, yeah, and there's the another advantage of this is that. Um, the administration is kind of bundled together in in one in one certain phase of the game, rather than like you have a little bit of administration um, at the end of every action. And I kind of prefer to have the administration in a in a in a game phase because that way, during the time when you actually make conscious choices, you are a bit more within the flow of the game and you are less distracted by the administration. I like Terra Mystica, but there you have quite a bit of administration during the active round, and I keep forgetting collecting my victory points from doing something or doing this and that, because there is quite a bit of administration, and that's why I kind of prefer um, to have rather little administration during your turns and have more administration during a administrative game phase, let's say. Yeah, and I think you know if you're designing a game like this, you really need to think early on, how are you going to handle time, you know, and what it's going to look like. Are you going to have seasons? Are you going to be able to speed up time kind of like you, you can in viticulture and, and, and do certain things, maybe not the most thematically, but works mechanically, or do you want all the players to experience the same 
season at the same time, the same phase, or like Everdale, do you want to have it where some players can get out, you know, get ahead in the rounds, so to speak, like they can kind of take extra turns or whatever uh, ahead of other players and other players are kind of still in the previous season, still doing different actions. And so I think it's something to think about early on because it matters. It matters a whole lot thematically for a farming game, how you handle time, because time is one of the main aspects of, of farming. And so definitely something to think about. And I like the phases, you know, I like how, you know, we're all, all right, we're all in the production phase. We're all in the administration phase. It just makes a lot of sense. And it kind of keeps things simple for the players, helps people actually uh, help each other as far as like, Hey, don't forget to do this. You know, we're in this phase right now. Don't forget you to do that little extra thing. They can kind of help each other out versus, you know, it's all the wild west out there and you're taking different actions at different times. So I think it's just something to, to be aware of. Yeah. One thing when people, when people need to be careful though, is like, Phases are fine as long as there are not too many phases and they're not too complex. For instance, if you have a game like Food Chain Magnet, it has a lot of phases and every phase has, um, or most phases have even multiple sub-steps and the phases are rather complex. So um, this adds a lot to the complexity because you really have to consider when, what is triggered or what happens. And and yeah, with clients it's rather simple. You basically have like one cleanup phase, one income phase, one action phase, and that's it here, right? And then one scoring phase. Um, and all those things are rather simple, so it's it's okay that you can handle it. And you can also, uh, a simple graphic on the player aid is reminding you of all the stuff you need to do on the during those phases. If you really need to write out all the steps with words what hap- that happen in, in a phase, then it's probably a little complex. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think another thing to think about is, okay, do you want your game to last a certain number of phases, certain number of rounds? Do you want it to have in-game triggers? So tell me about what you decided for clans and kind of why you made that choice. I personally prefer um, if the game ends after a fixed number of rounds because, yeah, that has several advantages. It makes, like, game balancing a little easier. Um, yeah, it, when you have, like... A game, an end game trigger, it's just another challenge, a game design challenge you need to cope with and you need to solve. Namely that the way you trigger the game end is not a dominant thing to do, you know. Like, um, I mean, if you trigger, if the person who triggers the game and wins all the time, it can feel odd, um, or it can feel like, or it can, um, Result, uh, the result can be that uh, there is a dominant strategy, namely that one that lets you trigger the game end. And that is kind of like tricky to balance. And um, since I already had the clans, I didn't really like, feel like going that way. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times the game can become a race, basically, where players are just either racing to get to that end game trigger because you get bonus points or something like that. Or it becomes kind of a stalemate because everybody's trying to min-max all of their their crops and resources. And so everybody's like sitting on the verge of ending the game, but they're all unsure about who's going to win. It's like, okay, well, let me try to get two more points and then maybe we'll end the game. And every, if everybody keeps doing that, it makes the game stretch out maybe exactly. longer than it should. So both, yeah. both things are, are um, can also create a bit more frustration than you actually want. Like, like if the game is uh, not ending and everyone is trying to gain another one or two points and that is basically like there's um, there is very little excitement per minute at the end of the game and that's something you don't want right I mean you want a lot of excitement per minute and the climax shouldn't like end way before the game actually ends um, and at the same time um, it can be quite frustrating that I don't know you collect a lot of resources to fulfill this contract or to do this big project in the game and then someone ends the game a little prematurely and maybe from an objective point of view it was a mistake that they did it yeah let's imagine like um they, it was a mistake from the from a mathematical point of view that they ended the game prematurely it was a mistake for themselves and let's say i have um considered their position and i came to the assessment it would be a mistake for them to end the game right now and that's why i took on this big project that i could fulfill the next turn but since they are now making this mistake to end the game prematurely i am basically um in a bad position and lose a bunch of points so it has a a certain level of interaction but um 
it adds this level of interaction, but it also adds um, a big risk of kingmaking, which I prefer not to have in a complex strategy game. Yeah, that's another really, really good point. All right, let's go back to the market. Tell me a little bit more about it and, and kind of how it works and why why you put it in the game, why it makes the game so thematic. Tell me more about the market. Yeah, in the end, uh, so you can buy and sell basic goods and processed goods, and you can also um, export processed goods. And you can also produce basic and processed goods yourself. And yeah, the idea is basically like, um, early in the game, um, it, it is usually maybe like better, um, to produce stuff because then you will produce many more rounds. Um, I mean, your production will produce uh, several rounds. So it is kind of cheaper in the long run to produce stuff. But sometimes you're like offered like a really good contract and you want to fulfill it and you don't have the resources. So then it may still be worth it to just buy from the market, whatever you need. And um, since you can buy and sell uh, basic and processed goods, this allows for several strategies. For instance, if the basic good, let's say milk is cheap, but uh, cheese is expensive, it could be a good idea to buy milk um, and place a cheese dairy and use the milk you bought to produce cheese. And then you can sell the milk, uh, the cheese at a high price in the next round. Um, if the cheese price is low and the milk price is high, you wouldn't want to do that because you would hardly earn anything. Because like then, the, the, what you earn from the sale of cheese would be almost the same amount uh, that you paid for the milk. Um, like in real life, um, you have to consider like your profit and also your um, uh, the question you need to ask yourself is make or buy. For instance, if there's a contract with whiskey and the whiskey price is low, then it might not be a good idea to start producing whiskey, but rather buy the whiskey, which is maybe cheaper rather than like producing it. Um, or if the whiskey price is high, but the price for grain is low, um, or let's say the whiskey price is low and the price for grain is also low, but there is a good whiskey contract that you want to fulfill, it might be a good idea to um, simply buy whiskey to fulfill that contract or you buy the grain and produce whiskey to fulfill that contract. So through these interconnected um, systems that are very thematic, uh, you create or the game creates a plethora of choices and, and yeah, that's, I think, one of the core strengths of the game because the, the core system is really simple, but it's still quite strategic and interactive and thematic at the same time. Yeah, very cool. And then tell me about how the market changes as far as like the values of goods and whatnot. Um, yeah, well, there's a supply-demand system. I mean, um, the more you buy of a good, the more the price uh, increases. The more you sell of a good, the price decreases. And um, you need to pay for every good that you buy or uh, you need to pay. And for every good you sell, you, you get a certain price. And um, then you have like a sale or a trade capacity that is limited by the number of merchants you have. So the more merchants you have, the more trade capacity you have. And um, yeah, so that is also like a choice you can make in the game. Do you want to use the market extensively? And if yes, you'd rather want to have a lot of merchants. Or do you rather rely on um, producing goods? Then you don't want to hire so many merchants, otherwise they would be idle and it would be a waste of money to hire them. All right, so let's uh, turn our, our perspective to scoring. Uh, you know, in farming games, there are lots of different ways you can score. I know in Uwe Rosenberg games, you can score with everything. I think opening the box gets you two points. I think taking the, the game out of the baggies gets you three points. I mean, everything is a point. And so, like, how did you determine the scoring system for clans, and like, why did you make those choices? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's like... I mean, I would say the scoring system in clans is rather standard. I mean, you also get... You have this uh, point salad system where you get points for almost everything, although there are some ways that are clearly inferior to others that you have like end of round scoring tiles that are very important and um, yeah they usually make about 30 to 40 percent of the score and then you have 
whatever 30 percent of the score i'd say and then you have um export contracts that are also important they also make a big uh chunk of points but what people kind of forget about them is they make a lot of points but they also hurt you quite a bit because like fulfilling contracts is kind of expensive and um when you fulfill a contract you need to discard resources uh those resources you might you could have sold if you had sold those resources um then you would have had a better engine and thus more points in the long run plus the resources that you discarded for the contract would have earned a few points themselves so while contracts earn a lot of points in clients they also hurt you in a certain way and that's kind of invisible um at at the first glance and um and then you, in the end, you get points for, for resources that you have, uh, left. And, and then there are like two final scorings. One is for settlements. That's kind of like rewards a certain way to expand on the map, um, which incentivizes people to spread out on the map. And this system I came up with because it, uh, increases the chance that people actually run to, into each other on the map and there's a lot of interaction and people are not like just like separated and one player occupies the the north corner the other one the south corner the other one the west corner and the east corner and there's hardly interaction that would be boring but rather uh, typical clans games you'll see all players engaged in all parts of the map more or less that makes it a little more interesting and in this scoring um, the best three players gain points, um, the best player gains the most points and so on. And what I like about it is that it is a sub-zero uh, sum system. That means there is a fixed number of points that is going to be given to players. And um, zero sub-zero uh, sums, not zero sub-zero sums systems are um, usually quite interactive because that means um, the better I do, the more you lose, and that creates for quite a bit of interaction. And I also have to consider: yeah, are you actually an opponent, or are you like not my opponent because I don't know you have way less points than me anyway? So I don't really care about out competing you on this uh, scoring, for instance. Yeah. And then there is another end of round scoring that is like who has fulfilled most contracts, and. Yeah, that is also adding um, quite some tension at the end of the game because yeah, you you might try to fulfill another small contract to simply outbid uh, out compete your opponent. Gotcha. And so, tell me a little bit more about the scoring where it, where it's like first, second, or third. Like, is it based on okay, I have the most milk, so I get this many points, and you have the second most milk, so you get this many? Is that how it works? Or, or tell me about. And uh, no, I mean the one scoring is called settlement scoring, and it. Um, basically awards like the player who has built has most connected settlements on the map gains most points it is kind of based on like how many separate settlements you have that are connected through shipping your shipping range and so they get 18 points the second best gets 12 points the third best gets six points and and the other one is for the number of contracts it's also it's 12 and six points for the two best players okay gotcha all right, so moving on to, let's talk about playtesting. What were you looking for when you were playtesting the game? What were some of the things that let you know this game was good, it was publishable? Tell me about your playtesting process. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always a good sign if people are willing to playtest more or less voluntarily numerous times. I mean, I'm not very good with graphics, so I mean, my prototypes don't, very, don't look very nice, so um, that was a good sign. My process, I think, I, I don't really know how other game designers are doing it exactly, but I think that many game designers have a different process than me, in the sense that I design, like, a big part of my game design happens just in my head, and I'm more or less, like, fantasizing or visualizing the game, and I can fairly, I think that's one of my strengths, to visualize and um, imagine if these these certain mechanics would work together and would be fun or not. Um, I think that maybe because in, when I play, was in a chess club, I also played uh, blind chess. And in blind chess, you basically you, you cannot look at the board and you have to remember the position and someone is telling you the position. And you have to visualize everything in your head. And um, so partly 
due to that background I have the ability to do that and partly it is because I'm, I'm not very good at actually building the prototype you know um, and I'm not so good with graphics and I'm not I'm actually more of a digital person not so much a paper person and and that's why I don't really like to build prototypes and that's why I try to uh, or I tend to use as little as few iterations as possible and whereas other people they make many completely different prototypes and they're like I don't know tossing the prototype completely making a completely new prototype I'm rarely doing that I'm only I'm making iterations but they're like um, they, they have only contain small changes usually and not so many big changes also I do lots of balancing before I actually build the first prototype because I usually work a lot with Excel and I put all the game values in Excel and then I can basically um, calculate the balance of the game more or less in Excel and while this is not perfect and often I have to make an educated guess like what is 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 like a turn of worth you know when you get a free upgrade in clans you're not only sparing for money that you would usually have to spend on a on an upgrade but you're also saving a turn to actually uh do an upgrade and in, in order to value that the saving of a turn I, I have to make an educated guess how much money that is worth and i'm making this kind of educated guesses and um, I'm having a cell where I say, yeah, my educated guess for the saving of a turn is, is let's say, two coins. And whenever uh, in the game I have to also factor um, saving of a turn um, as part of the balancing calculation, I will return to that um, cell. And that's how I basically um, manage to make very few iterations and usually I don't know after five to ten uh, playtests or or often even after five to seven playtests you have a decent game that actually works I mean it may not be perfect there's stuff that is not so fun so much fun but and some stuff is not balanced but it works good enough that people enjoy it um, so that in that regard I'm, I think I can imagine my approach is quite different than other game designers approach I'm not sure yeah, I mean, I think the, the approach of trying to balance at the beginning, I think, is a split between lots of different people. Some people try to spend a lot of time on the front end balancing things to make it, you know, as, as close to balance as possible before they really get into it. Some people don't worry about it until the very, very end. And so I think it's just a, a personal preference thing. What are some of the things you're looking at in that Excel sheet? Are you looking at, okay, I want to make sure certain strategies aren't worth more than other strategies, trying to balance different, uh, you know, uh, strategies or different tactics in the game or like what else are you looking for as far as the numbers mm, yeah well one part is um, really to make it roughly balanced because i am aware that people who play this my game they're doing me a huge favor and i don't want to mm, yeah make them feel it's kind of not worth their time because if they don't if they're not as motivated to continue playtesting i have a problem so it's kind of a, a huge resource for my work that people are playtesting my games are and are motivated and giving me feedback so that's why I'm kind of cautious uh, to and I, I kind of respect the time and I want to have them as much as a good time from the very beginning on even in the first playtest and that's I think one of the reasons why I try to spend rather a lot of time before actually making the first prototype yeah, and then like, what numbers are you looking at? Like, are you looking at different strategies or, or that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I am looking at different strategies. Um, um, I mean, there is like a different things you can you can do. Like, yeah, you can try to do balance like uh, different items in a subsystem, which is probably a little easier. Like, for instance, if you have like the export contracts and clans, what I did is I calculated the return investment for every uh, contract. And I basically calculated like how good, what is the return investment for this contract if you get it in the first round? What is the return investment of that contract if you get it in the last round? And then I compared all 50 contracts and this way I kind of balanced them out. That part is relatively simple, I'd say. It can be a little more tricky to balance um, 
for instance, the clan abilities. I also try to balance the clan abilities and making like assumptions. Okay, when you have this ability, this is going to save you this much money, but I also um, consider when you're saving money. For instance, if you, if one clan ability would save you 40 money, 40 pounds in the first round, and another would save you 40 pounds in the last round, that's certainly not the same because you can reinvest that money in the first round and then it basically snowballs. And yeah, for instance, this, for this, in order to balance uh, this, you, you have to somehow apply a, a method uh, that is called in finance discounted cash flow. And, um, in order to, to make this work, you need to know what is the internal, uh, interest rate of the game. So for instance, in clans, you can, the simplest thing you can do is you can put out a miner or a lumberjack in the first round, yeah? So let's say you put out the miner, the miner costs 10 pounds. And let's say you put it on a, on an average cell that is about 2 pounds. So that means your total cost to place a miner in the first round is about 12 pounds that's quite realistic and the miner has an income of six pounds per round that means that an investment of 12 will would yield you about 50 percent interest rate per round right because you would earn six six pounds that is half of 12 pounds of your investment and so using this internal interest rate uh, you can basically calculate um, or you can compare earnings at different uh, timings in the game. And this is something you really absolutely need to consider for the game balance. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. All right, as we get ready to kind of wrap this thing up, let's talk about expansions. You know, these games lend themselves to being able to have lots of expansions. You can add new crops, new systems, new markets, new contracts, new different ways to, to play the game. So tell me, you know, what have you thought about as far as expansions for clans, you know, and, and what advice you would give other people designing a farming style game as far as what to think about with expansions huh um to be honest with when it comes to expansions i'm not so much of an expert because i as a gamer i hardly play expansions at all um because i'm i don't know i'm usually not that interested in expanding a game i'm usually just more interested in either playing the game that i enjoy or just playing a new game um, rather than like sticking to a game system and exploring it even further through an expansion. So that's why I, I'm really not so much of an expert when it comes to expansions. Um, yeah, with clans, the easiest would be really to add more content, to add more clans, more scoring tiles, more port tiles, maybe new map tiles. Um, of, uh, yeah, of course, this would require a bigger box, uh, potentially. And um, that would can be kind of like an like something that is easy to do. The game is also on Board Game Arena right now, so people can play it online. And there we are collecting a lot of uh, stats, and that's kind of cool because then we can kind of um, calculate the balance of clans, for instance. And we may come to a conclusion, okay, one clan is uh, slightly better than other clans. How can we... Um, improve the balance through the expansion. So for instance, we could improve the balance um, by adding certain port tiles or scoring tiles that are um, a bit less good for this overpowered clan um, than for other clans. In this way, you could basically make that one clan a bit weaker. Um, so that's kind of the thing that I'm mostly leaning towards right now because right I, so far I didn't have like the breakthrough idea how I could add some new game elements to the game without like screwing the balance of the clans and um, without I don't know bloating the game I mean one basic idea that I had would be to add philosophy to the game I mean as amongst others I studied philosophy um, I have a bachelor degree in philosophy and um, Scotland was is actually kind of famous for their philosophers they had David Hume they had the util utilitarians, um, Jeremy Bentham, John Mill, and also Adam Smith. Um, he's kind of known as an economist, but he was also a philosopher. Um, the Invisible Hand from Adam Smith. So um, would be kind of interesting to somehow add philosophy to the game, um, um, thematically, or or maybe add something like more heavy industry, like uh, I don't know shipyards and something like this. These are kind of like some ideas of mine, 
but I didn't have any breakthrough idea about uh, game systems um, that I could add. Um, but I had already a few clan ideas that I also partly playtested and new ideas for portals and so on. Yeah, very cool. Well, hey man, this has been great. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts? Like if somebody's listening to this, they're thinking about designing a farming themed game, you know, trying to put one of these together, what would be your uh, final advice to them? Yeah, again, I would, I would, I would really say like, um, ask yourself, what is your target group and what does your target group want? What makes them the most happy? And, um, how long can the game be? How complex can the game be? And, um, then try just to, to, Train every single game design question um, should consider these factors. Definitely. All right. Well, Juma, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, before the uh, episode, we were talking about this educational game you've been working on. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I just um, received the first uh, final copy of Herzschlag. Um, it's a game I designed, and um, it's a game about the power grid and electricity and a looming blackout. It's a semi-cooperative game for three to five players that uh, lasts about 30 minutes. And I was hired to design this game because like a, the, a large batch of the French run will be donated to schools where um, teenagers who are aged 16 and older will play this game um, in school. And it's semi-cooperative in the sense that every player has um, their secret goal and that gives them victory points if they fulfill it. And there are other ways to score uh, victory points. But if at, at the end of one round um, a blackout happens because the power grid is uh, too unstable, um, everyone loses immediately. So players kind of need to balance cooperation and competition in this game. And that's kind of very exciting. And yeah, I'm very um, yeah happy that this game is now finished and it's going to be released very soon. And curious how people will like it and so far the game is in German and we'll see how successful um, it'll be and if it's uh, gonna be successful we consider to also translate it to English. Awesome well I definitely hope that that happens hopefully it, uh, it helps the kids all around the world understand power and the power grid and, and the way electricity works. Well Jim I really appreciate your time really appreciate you coming on the show good luck with that game that's about to come out and all the other stuff uh, you got going on right now. Thank you Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?